0: Good morning. Good morning. I've been warned that this microphone can be a little sensitive to the letter P. So please be patient with my pronunciation. (laughs) The other day, excuse me, I was uh, listening to Toby Mack speak to the uh, students at Liberty University. And he said something that struck me as kind of profound. So I will uh, share that little nugget with you before I read. Now, what he said was that a lot of people claim that they want to have a relationship with God, but any good relationship begins with good communication, and good communication means that both sides get to speak, and both sides are willing to listen. We speak to God through our prayers, and He speaks to us through Scripture. So he went on to say, That if you're not praying and or you're not spending time in scripture, then you're not communicating. And if you're not communicating, don't be surprised if your relationship feels a bit off. So with that, I will offer up this tiny little prayer before I begin. And that is just simply, dear Lord, please help us today with our communication skills. Amen. Today's reading can be found on page 1155 on the Pew Bible, if you care to fact check me. Uh, it's Galatians five sixteen through 25. <clears throat> I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of a sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you so much, Russ. If you're new or if you're visiting, uh, welcome. My name is Chris. I serve as the pastor here uh, but today, Russ um, preached. So Russ, that was, um, I couldn't say it much better, so amen. You're dismissed. <laughs> we're, uh, we're thinking, we're going to spend some time this fall. We just started last week thinking specifically about, specifically about work, our work, and God at work. And by the phrase God at work, there's a dual meaning, and of course we intend both. Of course, it means that God is working and the, the work that God is doing but also God at at our work. You might say, God at our workplace. This is what we're talking about. But if you're a student, then this is is you as well. And if you are a stay-at-home parent, then your work, you have your work cut out for you. You're chasing toddlers, you're chauffeuring, you're changing diapers, whatever it is you're doing. If you're retired, Um, Your work is whatever it is you find yourself doing, and it's it's stunning. Almost every person who retires tells me, I'm busier now than I ever have been before. So I don't know what it is you do when you're retired, but whatever you do, that's what we mean by work in this series as well. It's not just a 9 to 5, even though that's what we associate with it. We know it can't be just a 9 to 5 because a 9 to 5 didn't exist thousands of years ago when the Bible was written. Therefore, whenever we see the word work in the Bible, the best way to understand that is what the biblical authors meant, which is this. It's whatever you are called to do in the present. And we can think about it a little more pragmatically as well by saying whatever it is we give a significant portion of our time to. And I'll tell you, you know, for this series, I found an awful lot of help Uh, from a British author named Mark Green. There's a quote of his on the front of the bulletin that you can read afterwards. He wrote a little book called Fruitfulness on the Front Lines. And he gives six categories within our work, six ways that we can think about work and ways that we would honor God in our work. And his distinctions are really helpful. So if you probably, it's it's not a very well-known book, um, but if you have read his book, you'll hear a lot of what he teaches In this sermon series as well. Just structurally, he gives some helpful frameworks. So this week, this first week, we're going to address maybe the most obvious framework. How do we honor God through our work, and where is God present in our work? And it's a question of character. Most of us, so if somebody were to ask you, what does it look like to be a Christian in your workplace, I bet most of us would default to some version of the same answer, which is it's about character. It's about integrity. It's about how I do my work. I express my faith through my character and through my integrity. And I don't think this is a very controversial um, understanding. I don't have to convince you of it. And I know this because we've probably all seen examples, a few examples at least, maybe just a handful, but of people who have expressed very godly character and integrity through their work. I know it's true even more so because many more of us can think of many more examples when we've seen people display rather ungodly character and integrity in their work and through their work. And the fact that that's so striking and jarring to us tells us that this is a natural expression of our faith. I don't, I'm not going to spend much time, I'm not, probably not going to spend any time trying to convince you this morning that your character at work and integrity in your work matters. If you need me to convince you of that, um, find me after, we'll, we'll talk after church, okay? But I'm just assuming that we're all on the same page on that one. The question I really want to start sinking our teeth into this morning is how do we develop the kind of character integrity, the, the godly character that God wants us to display in and through our work? And maybe a better way of asking it is actually this, how does God develop his character in us. The Apostle Paul writes a fair amount about our character, our integrity. One of his most famous teachings occurs right here in Galatians 5, which is why we're using this text this morning. And this morning, we're going to think briefly about the distinctions in what godly character is and isn't. And then we'll spend more time thinking through how it's developed. And we'll, in both of those, we'll approach what it is by first looking at what it isn't. And we'll approach how it's developed by looking first at how it's not developed. So we're going to look at what godly character isn't, what godly character is, how godly character is not developed, and how godly character is developed. So let's start with the negatives. That's always a good place to start, right? If somebody tells you I've got good news and bad news, you always want the bad news first, right? What isn't godly character? Well, for starters, it's not just being nice. This is one of the key breakdowns that most of us, if we were pressed, what does it mean to have godly character? We might have a harder time articulating what we mean by that. It's not just being nice. You can be exceptionally nice and exceptionally polite and not very godly. Ask any southerner, okay, and I'm from the south, so I know, and some of you are from the south, and you will get this. Ask any southerner, Tell me about the phrase, bless your heart. Anybody, even if you're not from the South, you know about this phrase, right? Now, if you don't know much about, if you don't know the meaning behind the meaning of the phrase, bless your heart, you think, that sounds very nice. That sounds very polite. He just blessed, he blessed my heart. And sometimes it is exceedingly nice and polite and it's genuine and it really is a deep compliment. But you're all laughing because sometimes it isn't. Sometimes, the most scathing thing somebody can tell you is, oh, bless your heart. (laughs) Sounds nice. It sounds polite, not very godly. I'm from the South, so I can say these things. Godly character, excuse me, is not about being nice. Being nice, being polite, those are outward traits. They're on the external. And it isn't always, but outward traits can be just a veneer. Just that that appearance of wood on the outside of the particle board from that furniture you bought from Ikea. Nothing against Ikea. We have Ikea furniture, but it's not real wood. Godly character is an inward trait. It's what Jesus is alluding to when he says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's talking about our heart. So what is godly character? It has something at least to do, it's not, it's probably more than this too, but it's certainly not less than a purity of heart that causes life-giving words and actions to overflow, almost uncontrolled. It's about our heart more than our actions. It results in certain actions, yes, of course, But those actions have to grow from somewhere. It's almost like the soil in your heart from which the fruit of the Spirit that Paul's gonna talk about grows. Now, twice in this section, in Galatians 5, Paul Paul reiterates this by saying, live by the Spirit. And we'll look more closely at this phrase in a few minutes, but, but there's something about, you see, even in that phrase, live by the Spirit, what's he saying? He's saying there's something about the Spirit that controls, ideally, our inner being. And the more we live by the Spirit, the more we live by the Spirit, the more we exhibit a Spirit-led life, maybe even without even thinking or realizing it. This really, really silly example, I know, but work with me here. Imagine you could talk to an apple tree. This is like Dr. Doolittle 2.0. You could imagine you could talk to an apple tree. And you went up to the apple tree, it's getting to be fall, right? The apples are starting to pop and be really ripe. And, and you said, and you went up to the apple tree, and you said, wow, like look at all of these apples that you've this is this is incredible. And the apple tree would, I guess it can look too. It would look back at you and it would probably look a little bit confused, and it would say something like, Yeah, like this is this is it's what I do. Right? An apple tree doesn't have to think about producing apples. It doesn't have to work to produce apples. It's just what it does. I couldn't make anything else. Like I couldn't even make a pecan if I wanted to. It's just, do you see? As we live by the Spirit, more and more the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control the more we live by the spirit the more the fruit of the spirit just inevitably grows it's just what it does and like we can't even help it like that apple tree it's almost like it's almost like our dna has been changed to reflect those things. We become these genetically modified organisms. And we don't even have to think about being patient or being gentle or being kind because patience and gentleness and kindness have just become a part of who we are. So the key question for this morning then is how how do we get there? How do we live by the Spirit? And to answer first, I want to I address how do we not live by the Spirit? This is where most of us get tripped up. Because I think most of us would say, I think most of us would of course I want my life to be marked by love and joy and peace and that whole list. But we end up taking our cues from very unhelpful places, not on purpose, it's by accident, and then we end up trying to do the right thing the wrong way. It often goes like this. You hear that list or you hear something like it. You hear the preacher preach about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and one of those, at least one of those, maybe more, but at least one of those jumps off the page to you and you think like, ah, oh, man, that's a weak area. I'm not very patient. Okay, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, patience, okay, so I just need to, God just wants me to be more patient. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be more patient and I'm gonna work really, really hard to be more patient. Okay, so tomorrow morning, you're getting out, you're up and you're getting ready for work and your toddler spills their milk. And, and something in you kinda, and you're like, yep, oh, be impatient. And you like very gently approach your, t- you know, and you do, a, you do a really good job with your toddler who spilled their milk. But they spilled their milk and you overslept a little bit because it's Monday and who doesn't oversleep a little bit on Monday and you're late getting out of the door and you have a really full schedule that day. And so you're late for your first appointment, which makes you late for your, you know how, and and you just feel stress and anxiety filling you, kind of like a balloon inflating in your gut. And by the end of the day, I mean, it's just been one thing after another, and it's Monday. And you find out that your employee or your subordinate didn't follow through on something she was supposed to, and it's just, it was the last straw, and you just lose it. You don't think anything of it. You're just like, this is, right? And then you get to in that night and you're trying to fall asleep and you're having a hard time sleeping because it's, right, the stress in you like a balloon and, it's, and, and then you realize, man, what happened to the patients? Like the day started off okay. Didn't end okay. The simple answer is this. You will never cultivate the fruit of the Spirit by working harder. You will never cultivate the fruit of the Spirit by just trying harder. You will never cultivate patience by just trying harder to be patient. Now, in these verses, this is all of what Paul's talking about. He's constantly contrasting the Spirit with the phrase in the translation we use is sinful nature, the literal word he uses is flesh. Some of you may have brought your Bible or if you use a different translation, it might say flesh there. And even that is just a a metaphor for kind of our, our default, our natural state. And what is our natural state but effort? We are taught, and we don't even have to be taught, it's just in us, like just roll up your sleeves and try harder. But look at what Paul writes in verse 17 here. He says, the flesh... The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. That outburst at your employee is you not doing what you want. Why? Because you can't grow the fruit of the Spirit by trying harder in your flesh. They're contrary to each other, Paul says. You cannot grow the fruit of the Spirit by trying harder any more than an apple tree can grow an apple or a pecan for that matter by just trying harder. It doesn't work that way. Or think about it this way if the flesh, the sinful nature, is responsible for our sin, Paul teaches, and yet you're trying to grow the fruit of the Spirit through the flesh, What did you expect? You can't kill the flesh with the flesh any more than you can kill a virus by adding more of the same virus. It doesn't kill it. It amplifies it. It actually makes the sickness worse. You see? We see these lists, and there are actually two lists. He gives the the works of the flesh and then the work, the fruit of the spirit. And we think, like, okay, I just need to try. I need to work really hard at doing less of those things on list one and more of those things on list two. But you see, like, those are not, those are not root issues. You can think of their symptoms. He calls it the fruit of the spirit, it's not the spirit itself, they're fruit. So while you're thinking do less of the first list and more of the second, it, it's, like you're, it's like you're spending all of your time, okay, I'm going to do less of those things and less, less hatred, less envy, less selfish ambition, less yada, yada right? <laughs> you spend all your time in your garden plucking weeds and, you, and here's the thing about weeding your garden is you're never done. You weed, you pull every single weed in your garden and wait a week and what happens? They keep popping up And going to seed and sending or sending runners underground or or whatever, and somehow they're multiplying. And here's the thing: like even if you could eradicate every single weed forever from your garden, and all you did was eradicate weeds, do you know what you're left with? A really, really nice patch of dirt. That's not a garden. That's not a garden. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not sin management. It's not just do less of the bad stuff so that hopefully God will approve of me. Landscapers will tell you, in fact, the best way to choke out weeds in your lawn, you know the best way to choke out weeds in your lawn? You know this. Grow better grass. That's why you, it's springtime. That's why, like, or it's, it's not spring. It's fall. It's fall right now. Newsflash. Um, it's fall right now. And some of you, if you're into your lawn, like, you're going to go out and you're going to overseed your lawn. And you're going to try to grow more grass seed this fall. And it's going to root and take root this winter so that next spring, you'll have enough grass that it'll naturally choke out the weeds in your lawn. You don't even have to spray herbicide if you have enough grass. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He says the best way to kill weeds in your garden is to grow more flowers. Trying harder is not the answer, Paul teaches us. The flesh is not the answer. So if trying harder, if working harder, if just rolling up your sleeves and getting a little more dirt under your fingernails is not the answer, then we have to ask what is the answer? If our own effort... If our flesh can't cultivate the fruit of the Spirit on its own, then where do we find it? Well, Simply put, if you can't find it inside, you got to look outside. <laughs> you look to the fruit, the fruit of the what? The fruit of the Spirit. We have to realize this. this is, and this is so fundamental, but it's so key. And in a sense, we never graduate from this. We never fully matriculate or move on we don't cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. It's called the fruit of the Spirit, which means the Spirit cultivates the fruit of the Spirit. God cultivates the fruit of the Spirit in your heart Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Don't come from self-actualization or self-improvement or you just working harder and trying harder to do better. It comes from God through his Holy Spirit planting some new seeds in your heart. This is what Paul is saying right here in Galatians 5. And he says, he kind of says it in two different ways, actually. So let's look at those two. First, in verse 24, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature. That's a strong word, by the way. Have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. That's funny. I, I I was writing this sermon this week, and then this morning I was looking over my sermon and kind of prepping, and I realized I had written a whole section telling you to do exactly what I just told you not to do. And I was stunned. And I realized, holy, like this is so infectious. There's something in all of us that just, so I had this whole section about how to crucify the acts of the sinful nature, that, that list. But Paul doesn't say crucify the acts of the sinful nature. He says crucify the sinful nature itself. You see? He doesn't say crucify impurity and debauchery and sexual immorality. He says crucify the flesh. Crucify the the soil in which those things grow. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, the sinful nature itself, along with its passions and desires. What does it mean to crucify the flesh and not just those things that grow out of it? For starters, if the flesh is roughly synonymous with trying harder, the answer has to be, in part, stop Trying harder. (laughs) Stop trying. And that seems too good to be true, I know. And if you think along, you realize that's pretty liberating. And then you realize, of course, Paul's being consistent because he starts Galatians 5 by talking about freedom and liberation. He says, For freedom, Christ has set you free. Christ wants to set you free from this constant work, 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 work to just do better at these things that I can't actually get better at. Stop trying harder. The harder you, it's like those, you remember those Chinese finger traps? And like the harder you try to pull your fingers out of them, the more stuck they get. That's what's going on here. The harder you pull, the more stuck you get. The harder you try, the more stuck you get. Crucify the flesh. Which one, is crucifying our insistence on figuring it out for ourselves. But two, crucifying the soil in us, that nature in us that leads to hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, factions, envy, and so on and so on. Crucify it. The author Mark Green, that I told you about, he calls it character assassination. I thought that's such a good phrase. He's British, they're so good with language anyway. Character assassination. In other words, like we're looking to crucify, to assassinate that nature the old character, the old self that leads to those things. How do we do that? It starts with this. The flesh, the sinful nature, desperately wants to remain hidden. It desperately doesn't want you to even realize that it's there doing what it does. So the first step to crucifying the sinful nature or the flesh is to shine a light on it, to expose it, to even realize and admit that it's there. The biblical authors call this confessing our sin. This is why we confess our sin during every worship service on Sunday mornings. Because you will never crucify something that you don't even know exists. And it will sit there and it will slowly grow and it will fester. But Paul and Jesus for that matter don't teach us to hide our sin. They teach us to crucify our sin. So step one, like confess and find the freedom that's actually, and confession isn't meant, I say this almost every week, confession isn't meant to make us feel guilty, it's made, meant to make us feel the grace of God. It's meant to free us. Do you see? Confess your sin. And if you really want to take it, and this is usually what the biblical authors mean, and we try to explain it away, but usually they mean confess it to another person, to another Christian, ideally. And that's scary, I know, But another Christian will look at you and ideally, if they're walking by the Spirit too, they won't judge you. They won't condemn you because Jesus doesn't condemn you. So how can they? And they'll speak the grace of God over you. And you'll realize more and more that sin hates the light. Sin hates fresh air. The flesh hates fresh air. And the more light you shine on your sinful nature, the more it will wither. The Apostle John writes about it this way in 1 John. He says, If we claim to have fellowship with Jesus, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, he's setting up kind of an abstract picture about living in the light and living in dark. And obviously, we would all be like, Yeah, well, I want to live in the light. I don't want to live in the dark, right? And then he explains what he means by living in the light and living in the dark. The very next verses, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. It's the very same thing he said about living in darkness. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's setting up a parallel. He says, when we ignore our sin, we're walking in darkness. When we confess our sin, we're walking in light. We're literally shining a light on our sin. But what's the best disinfectant? Exposing our sin, confessing it, is like, it's almost like taking a fish out of water. It can't breathe, and eventually it suffocates and dies. Crucify the flesh, Paul writes, which starts with confession, and then he says, Live by the Spirit. Twice he says, We live by the Spirit. Now, if crucifying the flesh begins with confession, living by the Spirit, if you're into these kind of theological categories, you could say this is roughly analogous to repentance. <laughs> repentance literally just means you make a U-turn. You, you stop move, walking that way and you start walking that way. And some of you are really on the ball and you're thinking, but wait, Chris, you just said stop trying harder. Now you're saying just make a U-turn. What gives? We don't live by the Spirit by trying harder. Remember, we live by the Spirit by living by the Spirit. Spirit. It's the Spirit. We're not saying try harder to live by the Spirit. We're saying just like invite the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit at work in you who will change you and transform you, who will cultivate in you the fruit of the Spirit. It's no accident that Paul keeps repeating the word Spirit. It's almost like he's trying to make a point here, that godly character does not come from us, it comes from God. And it can be as simple as as like in a in a moment of stress, Lord, I, I just don't have it in me right now. I don't have the patience for this situation. I need you to give me something I don't have. You see? Godly character comes from God. And it doesn't come from just a few little lifestyle adjustments. It comes from a complete transformation. The picture that the biblical authors usually give is a new heart. In Ezekiel 36, which is Ezekiel is a book filled with judgment and brimstone and fire. I mean, it's riveting. And in the middle of Ezekiel 36, God says this to his people. Listen to this. He says, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And Paul keys in on that language in 2 Corinthians 5 and says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. He doesn't just say like a 2.0, completely new creation. The old is gone, it's vanished. The new has come. We don't need a couple of life hacks to live a better life. We need a new heart. And I'm not aware of anybody who's performed a heart transplant on themselves. Godly character is not just trying harder to be nice. It is being transformed by the Holy Spirit into the kind of people who exemplify Christ, who just inevitably grow love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control like an apple tree inevitably grows apples. Can't even help it. It means being transformed into a people who demonstrate love in their workplace by disadvantaging, intentionally disadvantaging themselves in order to advantage their coworkers and their employees. It means being transformed into a people who are known for a deep joy, even when the work stinks. It means being transformed by the Holy Spirit into a people who possess otherworldly patience with the most difficult and annoying coworkers or classmates. It means being transformed by the Holy Spirit into a people who are famous for their kindness, for not firing off rash, irate emails in all caps, but who are, I heard this once, but who are like baseball catchers. Like no matter how fast, no matter how hard the ball gets thrown at them, they always throw it back softly. And we can try this on our own, but it just, it won't take. And we'll find ourselves right where Paul describes in verse 17, we will end up not doing what we want and we'll be frustrated. Why can't I figure this out? Because you can't get it by trying harder. It can only come from Christ who demonstrated all of these things and exemplifies. He is love. He is joy. He is patience. He is peace. He is, right? He demonstrated perfect love by, what did he do at the cross? But disadvantage himself in order to advantage others. He gave up his life. What is that? But disadvantaging himself so that we could have his life to advantage us. It comes from Christ who exhibited joy even when the work stunk. Hebrews 12 teaches us, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross and scorned its shame. For the joy. Jesus Christ possessed otherworldly patience. I was noticing, I've been reading with a group of people um, the first part of the Gospel of Mark over the past uh, four weeks or so. I've just noticed, like, man, Jesus tells his disciples a lot of times, man, you have little faith. And like, wow, that's pretty harsh. That's pretty, like, I'm not sure I'd want to. And over and over he keeps telling his disciples, you of little faith, and you know what? He never sends them packing. Not once. You of little faith, keep coming. Keep following me. Come on, come on, come on. That's incredible patience. It means following Christ, who is famous for his kindness. Kindness. Now, I don't know how many examples of Christ's kindness, and in Romans 2, we actually learn that his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, to that change that he calls us to. We don't cultivate love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and so on just by working harder. We cultivate love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and so on by following the one who is love and who is joy and who is peace and who is patience and who is kindness and so on. You see, it's not called the fruit of your work. It's the fruit of the Spirit. I think I've said that a dozen times this morning. (laughs) I hope it's clear. (laughs) The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such a thing, there's there's no law. Now, as we wrap up, you're probably wondering, like, wait a minute, I thought Chris said we were going to talk about work. Of course, godly character honors God, especially when we demonstrate it at work. But the godly character that we hope To develop and cultivate at our work and in our work begins in our heart. So we can't even talk about our work without starting with our heart. You will not demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit without the Spirit's work in your heart any more than that apple tree will produce apples without getting the necessary nutrients from the soil in which it's planted. Everything we talk about from here on out really depends on this, on God's inward transformation of our heart. And you can't work hard and get God to transform you. So just invite him. Just invite God to transform your heart. I don't care if you've never done this in your life or if you've done it a thousand times. Invite God to transform your heart. Let the Holy Spirit transform your heart. And let your character follow. Amen.